Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day! Welcome aboard the Starship Zero G Science Fiction Fantasy and Historical Radio for episode number 1459, entitled The Amazing Amazon. I am Rob Jan. And Megan McHugh. And our podcast title is Do You Want Pod Apple on That? (laughs) What do you think about that, Megan? The question, pineapple on pizza or not? Oh, look, I will eat it if it's on offer. I would never proactively order it myself. When I used to eat ham um, and pork iron products, uh, I would have pineapple on a Hawaiian pizza. Yeah, yeah. But I haven't had that in, since oh, 2010 or something like that, so I wouldn't know anymore. That's that's its place. It has to be on a Hawaiian. If you're adding pineapple to like a meat lovers, you've you've gone rogue, in my opinion. <laughs> and speaking of rogue pizza lovers. <laughs> We are going to be talking about the TMNT mm-hmm. movie, mm-hmm. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem, yes, which has come out and is bashing its way through the cinemas now. I can tell because there's kids running around with turtle backpacks. And oh, they live on. Their <laughs> they legacy. Do. I remember collecting Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle like uh, playing card, like little collector card that you get with the gum. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah. It's a long-lived uh, turtle power. Where was your, you know, my my introduction to them was in the 80s, 90s, uh, through the actual comic books and the graphic novel collections of the comic books. Mine would have been on TV. So I think definitely TV series would have been the entry point. And I think the movie, the playing card, the cards I was collecting were for a movie. If it was in the 90s, then it was one of the three live-action movies. Yeah, it would have been the live-action. So, I mean, look, it was only up from there in terms of the turtle lore for myself. But, yeah, that was from memory, the the live-action, which as a concept is a bit of a weird one. I think animation is strictly where the turtles belong. <laughs> well, you know, they were doing uh, animatronics from the Jim Henson workshop in those live-action yeah, ones. Yeah, true, so, true. You know, that's kind of anim- animated. Uh, anyway, um, they were also doing costumes too, so... Mm. That's memories. <laughs> and that was the TMNT cartoon opening theme from 1987, one of the many animated incarnations of the Heroes in a Half Shell. That was from Let's Kick Shell. There's mm. <laughs> a cast recording? <laughs> So, yes, Ninja kicking its way into cinemas somewhat unexpectedly um, is the new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. Now, this is the seventh run at a movie for these guys, and this one has the little tagline, Mutant Mayhem. Very accurate. So this is kind of a reboot as well. So it's got a bit of its own lore and it's a bit of its own approach to characters. So I think maybe some 
kind of loyalists might be upset about that, but I'm certainly not close enough to the source material to have any opinions on that. And I don't think it's anything huge enough. All of our main touch points of turtle lore are here. Uh, This one's put out by Nickelodeon Movies and Point Grey Pictures. And probably most important about Point Grey Pictures is that Seth Rogen's production company. So his usual collaborators are all on board here. And this one is distributed by Paramount as well. So no doubt we'll end up on their streaming platform once it's making its way to our at-home TV screens. It's in cinemas now. It's directed by Jeff Rowe. He had a hand in writing parts of Disenchantment, which is the animated comedy that was on Netflix. And this one is kind of one of his big feature film debuts as a director. He's got a few writing creds behind him. And for this, he did also co-write this with the input of Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg. Those two are long-term writing partners and collaborators. They've worked together on Superbad, Pineapple Express, This Is The End, The Interview, Sausage Party. We, we know and love these guys and they do what they do. So you kind of know what to expect. Uh, also having a hand in the script are Dan Hernandez and Benji Samet. Those two are collaborators themselves. They worked on the Detective Pikachu movie. And I did notice that we also had uh, Kyla Spears has a co-direction credit. It doesn't really appear on the internet, but it is in the end credits of the film. And I think he has worked with Roe um, before on a film. And so I think he had some hand in maybe some of the direction and earned himself a credit there. So this is very much a bit of a team effort of production, writing and so on. And Evan Goldberg is in it as well. In yes. terms of the, uh, the co-writing Yes, credits. Seth Rogen's collaborator, Evan Goldberg. Yes, so they've worked on a lot together. Uh, so as I mentioned, it's the seventh film, but there's also been multiple TV series, toys, all of that, originally stemming from, of course, our source material, which is the comic book, which ran between 1984 and 2014, created by Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird. And that was – you're quite familiar with those, Rob. Yeah, they were working out of their home. Yeah. <laughs> creating these image <laughs> comics. And, uh, you know, there was a, in black and white as mm. well. And, mm-hmm. you know, they're trying to just basically riffing off all of the superhero tropes back in the day. Yeah. So, you know, there was a time of when people were turning to that kind of meta commentary about superheroes, yeah. comic books, and so on. The unlikely set of heroes. And I think what appealed to them was the contradiction between the turtle, considered to be a slow, plodding creature, and then mixing that with, yeah, the agility of martial arts. And, of course, they wanted to have a little group and everyone has their own weapon that they specialise in and sort of a little distinct personality. And I think there's probably a sidebar we could go on about all the overlaps with the daredevil, but I don't know if we'll... we'll, We won't stray down that No, because they don't actually do that in this film much. No, no. This is more lore around... uh, Yeah, the origins of the Turtles have some very interesting crossover territory, and they have crossed over with quite a few different properties in their comic life, Mm. including Archie, the X-Files, Ghostbusters, Power Rangers, and Batman. So the Turtles have teamed up with or come across multiple different comic incarnations that we know and love but let's move to talking a bit about yeah this the film uh it's probably one key thing to say is it's very much directed at a broader audience so it's pg it's very teen and tween friendly it's meant to be a bit of a spin on the coming of age film and i think the most interesting point here is the the teenage mutant ninja turtles are actually played by teenagers Hmm. and they're 
right away the vibe is like, yeah, teen brothers, like they're teenage boys. This is the approach to the film. And the film, in my opinion, very much works because it draws from that energy rather than trying to work against it. So that's a pretty interesting move because I never thought about it. But yeah, most often the teen, the the turtles are played by some adult man. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that they are teenagers in this also really informs the animation style too. Yes. They're going for a a notebook, like a, a student's notebook sort of thing, so it's all vibrating literally out of the screen in terms of pencil colours and pastels and, and, and possibly chalk as well. Yeah. Very, it, we're, in the, we're into the Spider-Verse really. And it's very much a bit similar to some of the Ms. Marvel kind of marketing and some of the little bits of animation incorporated there. Yeah, it's very sketchy. It's but kind in a, of... But in a good way. Yes, in a good way. It's, in, it's all intentional and it's all, it's a bit like when you see really cool storyboards for films. It's a little bit of that style as well. It's all computer animated and backing all of this animation, we have a score by old mates Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. They've, of course, worked on many of the Fincher films and they worked on the animated film Soul as well and the Watchmen TV series. We know we know what they do. And as well as the score, it has a really great music drop soundtrack that mm. uses a lot of classic East Coast hip-hop and the vibe of the soundtrack from Rogan's mouth, own mouth is that it's a bit haphazard but they're all meant to share a certain energy and I think it really pulls that off. This is an origin story, so really... Uh, they just basically – I mean, is it a spoiler to tell you that there are four baby turtles and a, and a, and a, a rat in the sewers <laughs> of New York and, <laughs> yeah. and there's a radioactive canister of ooze that mm-hmm. contaminates them and, you know, before you can say with great power comes no responsibility <laughs> and anchovies on the side, they mm-hmm. become the mutant ninja turtles. Triple R. Uh. As mentioned before, uh, this one is, you might look at Rogan's and Goldberg's kind of back catalogue and go, hmm, but this is purely very family friendly. So this is designed to have a wide appeal. Um, I'll just give you a little bit of a hint of the plot. We talked about it a bit already. There's nothing too wild here, but it's got all the touchstones that we expect. Uh, It is a version of the origin story for the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, uh, splashed by a mutant ooze as very adorable baby turtles in the sewers of New York City. (laughs) Setting being a key place in all this, Uh, they are found and raised by a lone rat who provides a very loving home. As teens, the brothers yearn to be accepted by the humans that walk above, much like Ariel in The Little Mermaid. But how are they going to win hearts? Good thing they have all those ninja skills, huh? Especially because there's a mutant superfly terrorising the city and conducting a spate of robberies all in service of his own nefarious master plan. Of course, there's a secret initiative behind the scenes pulling some levers as well and we see the turtles team up to stop evil superfly and win the hearts of humanity. Mm. So that's pretty much the lay of it. And I think one thing I kind of wanted to call out is the voice actors. So as mentioned before, the key four are all teenagers. They're all voice act- younger voice actors. And I think part of what makes the chemistry of the movie work is that they recorded a lot of the voice uh, voiceovers together. So if people were in scenes together, they would record the voices together. Yeah. And so that includes the four um, teens playing the turtles, but also like Rogan has a lot of scenes with uh, John Cena, who's also in the film. And so 
that really meant that they could bounce off each other. And I really think that the energy of the teens together is what makes everything work really well. So maybe let's dig into a bit of who's doing the voice work here. Yeah. Um, I guess let's start off with our Fab Four at the yeah. centre of the film. <laughs> our Renaissance reptiles. <laughs> exactly. So as mentioned, we've got the Central Four. We've got Micah Abbey playing Donatello who's my favourite, uh, Sharman Brown Jr. playing Michelangelo, Nicholas Cantu playing Leonardo. My favourite. <laughs> <laughs> the leader. Yeah. So now Mike Abbey and Shaman Brown Jr. don't really have very many credits behind them. This is kind of their breakout. Cantu as Leonardo has done a bit of work before. He's been in the Walking Dead World Beyond spin-off. I have seen him in that. Oh, very nice. He was also in The Fablemans, which is kind of the Spielberg biopic, but not a biopic. And then he's also been in Family Guy and things. And he actually has a YouTube presence as well. So he's a bit of a gamer. He's racked up some subscribers there. Uh, so he's starting to build a little bit of a name for himself. And then rounding out our four is Brady Noon playing Raphael. He's also got a few credits behind him in Boardwork Empire and Diary of a Wimpy Kid. So these four really... I watched a little featurette that said they got along really well. A lot of their stuff together included some improvisation, which is even great, greater to hear once you've seen the movie and there's a few little notes about improvised uh, acting. <laughs> and so I think their energy is really what comes through in the film and the fact that they got along well and that that comes through in the voice recording. Also, I could tell that there's some lines in this that are using really contemporary slang. And I was like, there is no way a 40-year-old screenwriter wrote that. And it's true because sometimes the boys would say things while recording and then that got included in the film. Uh, and I thought that was really great. And that's what gives it a real authenticity of their energy together. What was your thoughts on the four kind of our core turtles? Well, I hesitate to say that they had chemistry between them, but they do. <laughs> they do. You know, it's it's seamless. You get every idea. This is interesting. Like a live action, many live action films mm. feature some sort of core ensemble. They yeah. didn't manage to do it quite as well as this. It's incredible, isn't it? And I think it's not only capturing the energy of the four and how they get along, but the energy of actually being a teenager. And mm. I think the fact they let that free and they were opening the door to that kind of chemistry in the film has made it what it is, which I think is a really great a great plot and dialogue film. All of the animated series and the movies, well, to a certain extent, have rebooted it. Mm. And so well, everyone has no real continuity. Yeah, yeah. They do refer back to the comics mm, and so on. Mm, but mm. in this case, I thought, okay, I'm seeing some interesting things here, like uh, Leonardo's a budding leader, and he's yes. uncertain about yes. that, you know. Uh, they leant backwards on the surfer dude thing for one of the other turtles yeah. to push something else instead. So I thought that there were some nice variations on that. Yeah. And this is very well-trodden territory, so it's nice to have, be surprised a little by the characters. Absolutely. And, you would, and, and that does mean that it has some of the quality of things like Stranger Things or It that I really relate to where they show the really nice friendship between younger characters. And when that's done well, I think it's so fantastic. And so it's like we're free to explore these different characters and not so bound to, okay, Donatello was like this in the comic. Michelangelo yeah. was like this in the comic. We have to do this exactly what people expect. Mm -hmm. um, so part of the core tension is that they're pretty exposed to the outside world. They know a bit about 
Uh, they know a lot about pop culture. There's rain. There's loads of pop culture references in this, um, and they kind of learn all that though. Everything shows up in the sewer eventually. Yeah, true, true. <laughs> but they are sequestered in the sewer, and it's because of they have a very loving but little bit overbearing parental figure. That, of course, is Splinter, who is played by Jackie Chan. Mm. Who is no stranger to doing voice acting for animated productions, Lego, Ninjago movies, Kung Fu Panda, mm-hmm. Mulan. Yep. And also the Jackie Chan Adventures television show. <laughs> yep, yep. So he's raised them, is very protective. He's very sceptical, I think, reasonably so, of the human world and how they would all be treated as mutants um, up above. And I did think it was interesting that his costuming was inspired by the dude from The Big Lebowski. I didn't know that. And his build was meant to be a bit Danny DeVito. So I also like the fact that he's – it's not – I don't think they set out with this in mind, but the way he plays it, it's like a an immigrant parent looking after their kids too overprotectively. Yeah, I yeah. think they kind of – some of the – the creative team called that out. It wasn't an intention, but then when it started to emerge, they just kind of mm. let it do what it was doing. And I totally agree. There's definitely hints around around that for sure. And I thought that was a pretty interesting layer to it. I didn't check on this, but I would really like to know if they used any, uh, not exactly rotoscoping or motion capture, but if, they, if Jackie's moves sure. informed it. I'd say probably not like actual physically now, but I think they were informed by his past performances and those kinds of moves and they really yeah. put that into the animation, which I think is very, very cool. Um, probably the next character to call out that makes up our core group is um, April O'Neil, of course, who is voiced by Ayo Edebiri and she is having a real moment. I've seen her in a, I'm seeing her in a lot of stuff. So she has done voice work before for Big Mouth, Probably one of the prominent things she's in at the moment is The Bear, which is a really fantastic non-genre TV show. She also did a voice in Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, and she's in a couple of upcoming movies, Theatre Camp and Bottoms. So she's working She's working a lot lately, so mm. I'm seeing her across, um, across my path quite a bit. So this is a take on April. April is a, an aspiring teen reporter. She quickly crosses paths with, paths with, bonds with, and teams up with the Turtles. And I think they also have a really great energy together. Yeah, yeah. For for a human <laughs> a human being interacting with yeah with mutants, and that know. that's where some of the nice little comedic moments. Because this film is very very funny. Oh yeah, we were discussing some of those comic riffs during the break there, and we were thinking, oh, I can't actually talk about them because they're just too funny. <laughs> yeah, but let's just one-liners. say that there's lots of very good pop culture references. Yeah. Um, if you're an MCU fan, you won't be disappointed. Yes, and if you're ARMY, you won't be disappointed either because there's a BTS ref, which made me very happy too. Um, what the hell does that mean? That's all right. They know. Army, they know. <laughs> Those who know, know. Yeah, if you know, you know. Um, but, yeah, this is riddled with cultural references, which will delight anyone um, who's in the zeitgeist at the moment. And should we talk a bit about our supporting mutants? Yes, uh, let's let's start with the the, the chief uh, protagonist, um, Ice Cube as Superfly. Yes, yes. So these are our antagonist characters that we're battling against. Mm. Now he's got a great presence in this one, as pretty much as good as the as the villain in the Spider Verse movies. Actually, the first one, anyway. He's great. Uh, he he looms in there as a character, and he's got this weird mirroring of Splinter's character. Yeah. 
there's a this is very much a, a movie about family, about uh, being part of a family, but wanting to be part of something outside of a family too, which yeah. I thought worked quite well. Yeah. And Ice Cube's character, Superfly, mirrors Splinter's one. So yeah. there's, you know, they're both trying to be parents in a way to yeah. their groups. Yeah, it's found family and then it's the challenges that come with that as mm. well. And I think those parallels were beautifully done. I think the core story here, it's just a really tight, tightly scripted little film and I think... Things like that are what really make it shine. And Ice Cube's actually really funny. If you, he's I want so to see good. this movie again to listen to what he says. He's, a lot of the time he's like talking to himself. I, he says I, the funniest things. I will say, I mean, you've mentioned it now, but there's, I think maybe because of the way it was recorded, there's a lot of great dialogue that you could easily miss. Yeah. So I think if you... If you don't see it in cinema, try to catch it on streaming with subtitles to catch that slippery bits of dialogue because I do think there's a lot of one-liners that I just managed to catch and were really mm. delight delightful. So, And like many good villains in 21st century films, <laughs> actually in the 20th century too, but it's particularly noticeable now, mm. he has a point. Yes. He, he actually has a point and you can see why. He takes it too far. I mean, they but, always do. Know, it's yeah. like, but, you know, same as Vulture. You're like, hmm. I can kind of see where you're coming from here. Yeah. All right. So, look, there are so many um, mm. characters in this, so many stars, actually. It's, yeah. it's like being hit over the head in an animated movie and they all go, look, Raul, stars yeah. is over around. I mean, Rogan's called up his mates pretty much, but. Right. Yeah. So we can work through these pretty quickly. No dismissal of them, but some of them have got a few lines. Yes. But, you know, these are voice actors, of course. Uh, Mary Rudolph, who's the judge in The Good Life, plays Cynthia Ultron, head of the. That's. Ultron, not Ultron, head of the obligatory evil corporation that mm-hmm, wants to mm-hmm. milk the turtles for their ooze-contaminated <laughs> mutagenic blood. Yeah. Ah, there's John Peacemaker Senna, uh, Seth Rogen, the Aussie Rose Byrne, mm-hmm, who mm-hmm. has worked with mutants before in the X-Men reboots, uh, Giancarlo Esposito, mm-hmm. our Breaking Bad and uh, Star Wars Mandalorian mm-hmm, alumni, mm-hmm. and we've also got so he's playing the creator of the ooze, Baxter Stockman. Yep. Uh, Paul Rudd. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and Kevin Eastman, one of the creators of the Turtles, gets a cameo too, and a good one actually. I thought. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So you know there are so many, and there's more than that too. There's there's also one of the mutants is played by Post Malone, <laughs> which is random. He's a he's a musician. Okay. Have you heard of him? No. Yeah, that's fine. Um, also, <laughs> it's another BTS. Yes, yes. Mr. Beast also has a cameo. If we're talking about YouTube, very, okay. very, very small one. Let's say. All right. Um, but yeah, they're kind of our supporting cast. A lot of the roles are quite small. Uh, but yeah, they're kind of fleshing things out. <laughs> Flesh, <laughs> fleshing things out and um, making things a bit interesting. Their character design is pretty cool too. So hats off to the design team on that one. And yes, the um, the Cynthia. Ultron character has more to her and since this movie has already been greenlit for a mm-hmm. sequel, mm-hmm. I'm sure that that will feature in it. Uh, comic book fans will remember that too as well. So, you know, there's, there's, there's some wheels moving under the surface in this one too. Yeah, they're also doing a TV series um, that they're going to release on Paramount+. Plus of course they are. Called Tales of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And I think what's key to say is even though there's a bit of a star-studded supporting cast in piecemeal roles, I think that the main voice work by the four turtles and they're, they've got the run of this film – 
And I think that's really the success of the film. So I'm mm. hoping that they'll have roles in the TV series and this will just be, that will be a continuation of what we've got here. Dude, they don't do roles. It's pizza. <laughs> <laughs> Did make me want pizza after I watched this. <laughs> um, Look, there's some bits in this that um, I just love. The, the, the family thing actually worked for me and it doesn't yes. always, you know, it's a standard trope, but mm-hmm, the, the mm-hmm. longing for it and for something outside of it. Uh, that's not too complicated, but it is quite moving in ways. Yeah. Um, I, I like the, the resonance between Superfly and Splinter. Yep. Um, Splinter's rather sad, tragic little... I don't get to meet mutants my own age. I know. <laughs> I think Splinter's so good in this. And I just... I do think very early they set up um, some great emotional tension and it's there for the whole film and the payoff that's, that you get are worth it. Look, you'll notice echoes of, of the X-Men in this. They're, they're, Splinter and um, Superfly, they're a shade away from going Professor X or Magneto, you know, Ooh, I felt that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and what movie do the Turtles go to see on their day out? Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, they just want to be teenagers and that, is that not the most realistic interpretation of teen life? I don't know because I've never seen that movie. Really? No, I've seen I've seen like five minutes or so, but I, I've never actually sat down and watched it. I did notice they probably didn't get the rights for the audio for that one because oh, there is that was what that score was? over top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We're not mentioning what film it is. No, you got to go see the film, and you should because I honestly have been raving about this film since I saw it. I thought the animation and the action scenes were amazing. I think the comedic voice acting, all the little timing bits were so good. I just enjoyed myself thoroughly. But there's also very sweet moments and so an emotional arc as well as it being very clever and yeah. very much, yeah, like a bingo card of pop culture references. And there's a style and vision behind it. Like I definitely think the filmmakers and probably Rogan, who I think this is kind of a passion project for him, they really had a vision of what they wanted this to be. And I think they've achieved it, which is, yeah, family-friendly but fun teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles coming-of-age story as they emerge from the sewer and, yeah, try to make it in the real world. There is, of course, a mid-credit sequence yes. to watch out for. And, uh, look, I, I thought the the way they'd done the artwork, it worked really well. It was like it was like Spider-Verse's multi-styled artwork. Yeah. Uh, but I did find that at times it got in the way of the fight choreography, and I know it's weird talking about that for an animated movie. But yeah, interesting. Uh, but they really did pull that together, I thought, you know, for some standout moments with uh, Splinter's uh, breakout uh, yes. fight and, yep. uh, and the um, the big boss fight at the end. I yep. thought that was yep. pretty cool. Yep. You know, so it, it, I must have gotten used to it all, to the language as I went along of the of the choreography yep. in, in terms of the way it synced with that, that sort of fractured and, and, and sketchy artwork. Yeah, yeah. And they, they have their Spider-Man moment, which I thought worked so well. It moved me. And that's what I wanted, you know. I think I'm, you know, we want some of that good, feel-good stuff mm. um, that's really well done. So, yeah, it's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem. It's out now in cinemas. One of my favourite scenes was backed by the song No Diggity by Blackstreet featuring yep. Dr. Dre and Queen Penn. This one took a lot of effort for them to get the rights to, and I'm so glad they did. They tried to get other tracks to back this fight sequence, and this one just works perfectly. Hi there, I'm Jen Saska. And I'm Sylvia Saska. And And we're we're the Twisted Twisted Twins, and you're listening to Zero G on 3 Triple RFM. Did you love it? Was it good for you too? Heck yeah. 
All right, from one comic book genre to another, mm-hmm. we have a book here, a hardback, Wonder Woman, Historia. And it's the Amazons. And uh, it is a hardback collected edition of some comic books, a limited edition story. Vol- book number one, mm-hmm. although the other two and three, as far as I know, have not hit the stands or come out at all. I think they're still kind of floating the concept a bit. Yeah. It is written by Kelly Sue DeConnick. Oh, no one love her. The iconic DeConnick. Old mate. Yes, very much so. Mm. Acclaimed author of a staggering array of magnificent runs on comic book titles ranging from Aquaman, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Bitch Planet, Non-Compliant, as well as one-shots for Sif and Rescue, that's uh, Pepper Potts, and Captain America and the Secret Avengers. I will always treasure her remarkable run on Captain Marvel that mm. brought the character of Carol Danvers so exhilaratingly deftly into the 21st century and who, of course, informed the first Captain Marvel movie. Yep. Kelly Sue DeConnick has actually got a little cameo on that too. Uh, The artists on this, uh, Phil Jimenez, uh, American comic books artist and writer, did work on the uh, Wonder Woman series back in uh, 2000 to 2003, Uh, worked as a penciler on the Infinite Crisis crossover miniseries, Uh, worked on New X-Men and the Invisibles and now doing art for this, along with Jean Ha, mm-hmm. um, who did worked with uh, Alan Moore and Xander Cannon, uh, the Batman graphic novel Fortunate Son, uh, also worked on Marvel Comics and has worked with Wizard Comics, mm-hmm. and Nicholas Scott, a Sydney Australian oh, artist awesome. who has worked on Birds of Prey and Secret Six. And I'm just looking here at a beautiful illustration of Wonder Woman that she did full of such life and power. Uh, also did the Black Magic comic book series, which is by from Image Comics in oh. terms of the turtles we are just talking about. So, yeah, she actually was also a, an actor too, briefly. So I don't know if that informs anything in, in her artwork. Yeah, but, interesting. You know. All right, so this is the setup for Wonder Woman Historia. The pantheon of Olympus's goddesses are pissed at the male gods, <laughs> starting with Zeus on down, and the long-suffering, abused state of women on Earth. Now, this is dramatically brought home when Hera, uh, Mr. Hera is Zeus, <laughs> sees all of the subjugations and abuses throughout the ages collectively, because she is mm-hmm. all-seeing, mm-hmm. uh, uh, which is well illustrated in the book she was wearing peacock feathers quite a bit so all those eyes and of course those great colors that's cool yeah this is dramatically underlined and i just turned the page to a double page spread of painted grecian vases urns Mm. and amphora where the women are detail less forms rendered in blood sort of rusty red yeah it's one of the most singular and chilling images i've ever seen in Mm -hmm. the illustrative medium yeah wow Degradation, chattelry, exclusion, entitlement, occlusion, Mm -hmm, suppression, mm -hmm. humiliation, subjugation, assault, murder. This is not a to-do list Mm -hmm. by any means. With this litany in mind, the assembled goddesses hire themselves to Mount Olympus to give Zeus a piece of their collective minds. Mm. 
united in justifiable anger, and I will take the time to name the goddesses individually as they deserve, Hestia, Artemis, Demeter, Hecate, Aphrodite, Athena, and great Hera herself. But she's actually sort of fades into the background because, Mm. well, she's got issues of quite considerable fear of Zeus, but also she's not going to let that stop her from doing things. Yeah. She has her own agenda in this. It's it's quite strange, and I'm... I don't really fully understand it, but I'm sure it would have been developed in later ones if they'd done them. Yeah. As you can imagine, this does not go down well. There are thunderbolts, <laughs> lightning, and it's very, very frightening. <laughs> As Zeus, who amongst other animal forms notoriously adopted by him mm. for deceptive and usually lecherous intent, he numbers uh, amongst those forms a patronising old billy goat, which is what mm. he reminds me of. Nice. Objectifying the goddesses as his doves and his beauties, he essentially dismisses their petition with platitudes and insulting theosophical ideas. There, there. You can almost see his godly hand reach out to smooth their ruffled feathers. (laughs) Not all gods. Well, Poseidon, rather ingenuously, given his traditional oceanic agenda, offers to wipe mankind out with a flood. (laughs) Sort of, yes, dear, yes. No, <laughs> great idea, like, great idea. Oh, yeah, let's wipe them out with a flood. Look, spurned and dismissed away from Olympus, the goddesses are embodying both raging, hot and stone-cold anger. Mm. They assemble to make their plans, which mm-hmm. is to create mm-hmm. a race called the Amazons who will be able to right some of the wrongs. Okay. And there's some great detail in all this opening section. Um, Hera calls out uh, Herodotus, mm-hmm. the Greek... Uh, historian and geographer, um, circa 480 BC, that kind of time zone, um, wrote the histories, which are uh, the Penguin Classic Edition is on everybody's shelf, I'm sure, (laughs) was on mine. So Hera says from the very first page of that history, uh, a catalogue of kidnapping women that reaches a point Mm. that, of course, does not end with Helen of Troy. Yeah. And that siege. And Herodotus says, thus far there had been nothing worse than women stealing on both sides. <laughs> now, you know, he has actually some, some respectful things to say later about Artemisia, mm-hmm. the goddess, but, um, you know, sure. Xerxes' uh, general in the, in the, uh, in the war, the Pen- Peloponnesian War. Um, you know, now this is from the writer that Cicero deemed the father of history, you know, mm-hmm. the father of history. Mm. I don't think I'll ever be able to read the histories again without stumbling over that casual misogyny and all the rest in there too. Yeah. And I had never really thought about that before. So, yeah. you know, Kelly Sudeconic has once again opened my eyes. Yeah. But I'm digressing and that's just to cover the goddesses setting about contributing to the creation of the race of warriors known as the Amazons. Mm. Now, artistically, the colour palette is both comprehensive and also judiciously applied in this book. Yeah. The shapes and forms and characters are rendered in powerful detail and en masse too. The yep. crowd scenes are amazing. So that even the master of comic book crowd scenes, uh, Sergio Aragones, could not help but gasp in wonder. <laughs> and in the same breath, I do wonder how his wandering barbarian swordsman, grew the Wanderer, would fare in an encounter, an encounter with Princess Diana. Uh, so uh, this is a, an amazing Amazonian book. It is one of the... Best graphic novels I've ever seen. Yeah. And it's so deftly handled. And, you know, Kelly Sue DeConnick is, is good at the dialogue. That's yeah. one of her things. Um, fostered by 
apart from the fact that she's got a keen wit, she also did like thousands of pages of translation of Japanese manga. Wow. So, you know, so she's pretty good at dialogue. She's had a lot of experience with it. Mm, mm. You know, I mean, there's stuff in this that makes you weep, like um, the exposure on hillsides of unwanted infants, usually female as a method of... That's inconvenient, you know. Mm. Um, And, yeah, I know they did that with um, the ill and the sickly and all that sort of stuff too, not just women, but... Still, yeah. Still. So the Amazons adopt a queen from the ranks of the abused, Hippolyta, or Hippolyta. The first few Amazons scourge the land avenging women. Um, They do some cool things with slave traders, I thought. (laughs) The moment that she becomes an Amazon is when she's remembered who she was already. Right, yep. The dialogue is is deep, full of wit and, you know, Deconic's signature complexity, and it's fully backed up. Yeah. And it's at times exceeded by the artwork in this. You know, the renderings in this are superb. I'm gushing over this because it's just <laughs> – this is, this is one of those hundred graphic novels to read before you die, I think. Yeah, wow. Uh, and you better appreciate it too or else the Amazons will help you along that path. <laughs> <laughs> it's not all fighting either, by the mm. way. Um, you know, Amazonian culture is way deeper than just that. So – it, it uh, covers the foundation of the Amazon nation, the, their exile to their island yep. home, yep. and the creation of Princess Diana. No. Not Princess Di, but Princess Diana yeah. of Themyscira, I think is nice. how you pronounce it. Wonder Woman. It is Wonder Woman Historia. It is a DC hardback. Um, and I, I, when I carry it around with me, as I did today, I, I take the wonderful dust jacket off. Yeah. Uh, and it's got like this textured cover of gold. It, it looks like it. It's truly lovely. I had a look through Rob's copy as we were here and just, yeah, the colouring and the intention for each section to get a certain mood to match the story mm. and just the details of how they've put the palettes and the structures together. It's all just, you can tell just by flipping without reading it properly that it's just a really well pulled together, beautiful graphic novel. This is a... a Story for all mankind, mm. I say. And at the back, it has not the usual cover gallery for the different editions that it was before yep. it became the, this book, um, it, but it's also got um, uh, sepia-toned character studies for the oh. for the uh, the different goddesses and the tribes of the Amazons. Oh, what a nice inclusion! Mm, and, and that's beautiful to see it without the great colours yeah. as well, because you can get some more detail there. Uh, also, the artists have done some storyboards for it and the pitch by Kelly Sue DeConnick yep. to push that through. And you also got um, uh, an idea of behind the uh, the panels, the sketches, yep. as they're working out the layouts for them. Mm-hmm. So I actually felt quite well served by that, that part of the book. I felt like that's a step above the usual sort of um, yeah. cover galleries, alternative cover galleries and stuff that they have. So Wonder Woman Historia, DC Hardback, The Amazons, Volume 1, and I do hope they get to the others. Maybe they already have and I just haven't seen them yet. That's possible. I would say, even though it's an older edition sort of thing, um, you know, that is just such a standout piece. Yeah. Now, uh, we've got many bits of music we could play. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we should probably go with uh, Rupert Greeson Williams' 
now iconic Wonder Woman's Roth, mm-hmm. you know, from the first Wonder Woman oh. soundtrack movie. That you know, you cannot help but love this piece of music, and it's the sort of piece in, that, in my head that's now set as WW's yeah. 21st century theme. It's it, a great leitmotif, and it's so triumphant. Like even the snippet you get in the Flash movie, I was like, "Can we just have more of this?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, she's often the Diana Gal Gadot is often the best part of some of the DC movies. Now, mm-hmm, I say mm-hmm. that as somebody who's got to go back and uh, who's got to binge watch a whole bunch of them because <laughs> I still haven't caught up with Batman yep. and the two Shazam movies I have and Black some Adam. interesting thoughts on The Flash. So if we do get there, we should discuss. Yeah, because I was thinking the Blue Beetle one actually looks pretty good. Oh, yeah, that's out now. Hmm. All right, well, that's it for Zero G today. Yeah. So enjoy yourself out there. Have fun with that lasso of truth, <laughs> but be careful with it. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.